Didn't realize it was my turn. Good morning. So good to see everybody today. <clears throat> Tell you what, for a rainy holiday weekend, it's a pretty good crowd for Sunday. Glad to see y'all here. Those of you who are visiting from out of town for the holidays, uh, glad you're here. Hope that you feel welcome this morning. Well, today we are back in Romans again after being away for a few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 11 there. We're going to be starting in verse 1, so when you find your place, would you stand as we receive the word of the Lord this morning? Of course, Paul is writing and he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your word. The truth is in this. Lord, there's just so much just richness here, God. And I pray by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see the truth that is contained here. Lord, this is the time of the year where we stop and give thanks for all the blessings in our life. And, Lord, the truth is we have so much to be thankful for just in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that everything else outside of that is just bonus. Lord, your grace is enough. God, I pray that that would uh, just become a reality to us this morning as we look at your word here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, several places in this letter so far, Paul has been explaining how Israelites cannot be considered God's chosen people apart from faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying that distinction, being God's chosen people, has absolutely nothing to do with race or geographical location or religious fervor. Israelites aren't accepted by God just because they are natural-born Israelites. The only way anyone is accepted by God is by having a professing, saving faith in Christ alone. And then Paul goes on to explain how Israel, from God's point of view, isn't really the Israel the way that most people have defined it or assumed that it was. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 9, he says, They are not all Israel who are descendants of Israel, nor are they all God's children because they are Abraham's descendants. So Israel, from God's perspective defined by God includes those whom he has chosen to reveal himself to through Jesus, those whom he has given the faith to believe that Jesus is the only way to be made right with him. And several times Paul keeps reiterating that this does not mean that God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament have failed. 
he shows that this is what those promises have always been about. The promises have always been to spiritual Israel rather than just physical Israel. And then here at the beginning of chapter 11, he says, nor does this mean in any way that God has rejected his people. And he supports this with the fact that he himself is an Israelite. And so if he is included in salvation, and that means any Israelite can, therefore God has not rejected them. The call to be saved goes out to all of them. If anyone is doing any rejecting, it's on them for rejecting God's call to be saved. In verse 2, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you remember back in uh, chapter 8, we looked precisely at what it means for God to foreknow someone. Back in Romans eight twenty nine, we looked at where it says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And we learn that for God to foreknow someone does not simply mean that he is able to look into the future and know who is and isn't going to believe in him. That is a wrong assumption because, number one, as we talked about, it puts God inside of time instead of outside of it. The God of the Bible is an eternal being who is not defined by or limited to time as we know it. He exists outside of what we know as time. The future to God does not mean the same thing as it does to us because God is already present right there in the future. He transcends time. And we learn that God for knowing someone does not mean that he has a knowledge of facts. It's not a knowledge about someone, as is, I know what they are going to do. It is a knowledge of that person, meaning a deep, close, intimate knowing of that person. It's the way that Genesis says that Adam knew Eve when it was talking about their physical intimacy. And it's the same word in the Hebrew and the Greek. Explaining divine election simply as God being able to look ahead into the future and to see who is and isn't going to believe in him assumes an unbiblical definition of what it means for God to know someone. Those whom he foreknew in Romans eleven two is referring to those whom God has set his affections on long before they were even born. It is those that God chose long ago to be the people that he would have for himself to represent him on earth and live with him for eternity. And those people would not be limited by geographical location or race. They would include people of every race and every nationality and every geographical region, not just Israel. Some Israelites are included in that, but not all of them. The next few verses here show us that this is something more than merely God looking into and being able to predict the future. They show us that Paul's talking about a special group of people that God has specifically set apart to be used in his plan that he established long ago. So let's look again, starting in the middle of verse 2. It says, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, 
how he pleads with God against Israel. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? This is God speaking now. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul is comparing this current time, the time after the resurrection of Jesus, with the terrible days of Elijah. And he argues that since there was a remnant of Israel that God chose to preserve in those days, that there is also a remnant that God has chosen to preserve in this day. And notice that the link between the, the, the two has absolutely nothing to do with the people themselves. It has nothing to do with how they behave, how obedient they are, or anything like that. The connection, the similarity, is all about God's action rather than the actions of the people. His sovereign grace is what preserved a remnant then, and so it is his sovereign grace that preserves a remnant now. In the parallel that Paul's making, he quotes from 1 Kings chapter 19. And what was going on then, and what Paul is saying now, I see a lot of um, application to what's going on in our world today. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah is in a pit of despair. In reality, I mean, he's actually in a cave of despair. Because this was immediately after his great victory on Mount Carmel where he challenged the prophets of Baal to see whose God was more powerful and who was real. And so they, most of you know the story, how they built these huge altars on this mountain and piled up all this wood and put a bull on top of it. And each one of them would pray to their God to send fire down and consume the offering. The prophets of Baal went first and they prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened. So they began wailing and screaming louder for their God Baal to show up. Still nothing happened. And so they got out their knives and started cutting themselves, being all dramatic, doing everything they could for their God to act on their behalf. Still nothing happens. Elijah basically starts trash-talking them. He's ridiculing them and saying, maybe your God is just asleep. Maybe you should be louder. And nothing ever happened. And so now it was his turn. But he did something different. He ordered that water be poured all over the wood on his um, offering, his altar. And he also had a trench dug all the way around it. And so much water poured on it that it filled up the trench around And Elijah didn't do this big dramatic thing. He didn't jump through hoops or scream or cut himself in order to get God to really, really do something for him. He basically just said, all right, God, show him. And boom, the fire from heaven came, consumed the whole altar, so much so that it dried up all the water in the trench. And all the people were amazed and began worshiping God. And Elijah killed all those wicked prophets. Well, King Ahab was there to witness this miraculous event. And he goes home and tells his wicked wife Jezebel what happened. And she gets mad and orders to have Elijah killed. Elijah hears about this, and so he runs off scared, and he's hiding in a cave. And so here he is at the lowest place in his life, feeling depressed, discouraged, and all alone. 
He sees the rebellion of his own people and the condition of his nation and how his culture just seems to be unraveling and falling apart and turning more and more away from God. And he is just completely distraught about it. It's the same way a lot of folks are because of the state of our nation and the things that are going on in our world today, wringing their hands about what all is going on there Seeing how the church in the United States is just shrinking more and more. More people are turning away from the faith and evil seems to be on the rise. I'm telling you, what we are reading here in Romans chapter 11 should give us a tremendous amount of hope in what is going on in our world today. Just like God did with Elijah, he wants us to know that in spite of how things look, no matter how bad things seem to be going, it's okay. God's still in control, and everything is still going according to his plan. And even though it seems like Christianity is on a drastic decline, there is a remnant that God has promised to preserve for himself. There is a remnant that will not shrink because God has preserved it. And none of his purposes for that people, for that group right there, that remnant, are going to be prevented from being fulfilled. But not only that, all these events that are going on in our world right now that we tend to get so fearful about, God is actually coordinating and using those events and working them for the benefit of that remnant, for the benefit of his bride, the church. And if your faith and hope is in Christ alone, then you are a part of that. And God is working everything out in our world today for your benefit. The truth is, man, if we belong to that remnant that God has promised that God is determined to preserve for himself. And in reality, y'all, we've got nothing to fear and to worry about and to wring our hands over no matter how bad things just seem to be getting. And you know, honestly, this is where God's sovereignty is just most comforting. That remnant exists based on God's divine choice rather than our behavior. If the remnant being preserved depended on us, then I promise you there would be much for us to worry about. A lot to worry about. If it was conditional on how well we behaved and how obedient we are and how uh, good we were and how faithful we were to God, then the chances of there being a remnant preserved in the middle of all the chaos that's going on in the world, the chances of that happening would be zero. There wouldn't be one. If it were up to us to keep the remnant preserved, there would not be one. And so the fact that it doesn't depend on us, that it completely depends on God to keep his people preserved should bring to us a comforting sense of peace. I mean, how comforting it is to know that despite of how bad things seem to be going on in the world around us, that God, in his sovereign power, has determined and promised to keep for himself a people who would not be moved, a people who are going to be faithful to the end. 
No military on earth can keep it from happening. No ruler, no government authority, no, no global conspiracy can ever come against it. Jesus even said that not even the gates of hell itself can prevail against it. His grace is amazing. Because to be honest, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be preserved. I mean, my gosh, as faithless as we are, all the things that we do, I mean, just disgrace God, belittle his name, and turn up. We don't deserve to be preserved to the end. And listen, when I say preserved, I don't mean that we are going to be protected and that nothing bad is going to happen to us physically. I'm not saying that at all. There is a greater value than our own safety and physical well-being. I'm talking about our salvation, our faith being preserved to the end. I'm talking about the kingdom of God will be preserved when all the other kingdoms of this world have crumbled and fallen. And you know what? Truth is, our country may fall. Our economy that is barely being held together by the thinnest of threads may collapse tomorrow and overnight all our money could be worth nothing more than to start fires with. ISIS could give the word and have every one of its operators who are here in this country right now get them to wreak havoc like nothing we've ever seen before. Make 9-11 look like nothing. Ten years from now, the primary language of the United States could very well be Mandarin Chinese. Every church building across this land could be turned into places where satanic rituals are held. Christians could be gathered up and executed for our faith, but reality is, in the end, none of that matters. Because according to Romans eleven five, there has come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice that nothing can come against. Other translations say chosen by grace. There has come to be at this present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now apparently Paul is concerned that we might not grasp the impact of that phrase chosen by grace. The implications of it are absolutely huge. And so he lingers there for a minute in verse 6, and he clarifies it. Let's look at that. Let's, let's read 5 along with it. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. The point is that if God's choice... If God choosing us is based on anything that we do, then you can't call it grace. That isn't grace. If we provide the decisive act in causing us to be chosen, then it is no longer a decision based on grace. I mean, just think for a moment. What meaning would it have for salvation if it depended on our action? I mean, if God watches and waits for us to act, then in response to our self-generated act, he chooses us and saves us, then we aren't chosen by grace. We're chosen by our human act. God would just be a responder to us. 
we would be the ones that determine his action and grace would no longer be grace. It's like I said last week, it's either all grace or it's not grace at all. And just to confirm that we're on the right track here and I'm not taking anything out of context, let's go back to the close parallel to this back in chapter 9. Paul is describing the freedom of God's choice by giving the example of Jacob and Esau. Starting in verse 11, he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob did not receive God's favor because of anything that he did. There was nothing he did that God would go, oh man, look at that Jacob right there. Boy, I'm proud of that boy. I'm going to just bestow my favor on him. Nothing like that happened at all. It was only because God decided to put his favor on him long before he was even born. He never had a chance to do anything to qualify for that favor or to show that he deserved it in any way. He didn't deserve it. None of us do. Okay, so what does all this mean for us today? What are the implications of God's amazing grace for our lives? How can we apply this? There's five things that I'm going to list and what this means for us. Here is what we must do with grace. Number one, be humbled. Realize that you are dead in your sin with absolutely no way of bringing yourself to life. By God's grace alone, you are awakened to the beauty of Christ crucified for sinners. And by grace alone, according to Ephesians 2.8, God gave you the gift of faith to believe in him. You aren't saved because you walked down an aisle or because you repeated the sinner's prayer or because of anything that you did on your own. It was only because of God's amazing grace. He saved you. You're walking down an aisle. You repeating a prayer was a response to him calling your dead spirit to life. Like I mentioned last week, when you stand before God and give an account as to why you should be let in and others shouldn't, it's not going to be because that you are any more wiser or any more obedient or any more moral than anyone else. If you have a correct understanding of salvation with tears rolling down your face, all you'll be able to say is thank you, thank you, thank you. You'll be humbled. Man, just think of how beautiful church would be if everyone had their pride broken because we all knew that we deserved nothing good. Every trouble would be received without grumbling and complaining. Every good would be received with amazing gratitude. You know, the reason why there's so much complaining and griping and protesting and demanding going on in our society today, the reason why there is so little gratitude because everybody thinks they deserve something, that they're entitled to things. When you understand your condition apart from Christ and know it is only by his grace that you're not still in that condition, 
It's near impossible to have that kind of an arrogant attitude. That's probably what concerns me the most about this younger generation right now, is that they are the most entitled generation that has ever been. And so they're demanding their ways. You see this across universities right now. They're demanding to have their way because they're entitled to certain things. They deserve certain things. Hey, what if you go around thinking that you deserve something, that you are owed something, that you're entitled to something, you're going to have a really hard time grasping the grace of God. I just, some of y'all may have seen the article I did last night. Uh, president of Wesleyan University in Oklahoma wrote this letter to the students in his paper basically telling them to grow up, that this wasn't a, a daycare And he gave the story of a student who came up to him at the end of a chapel service that they held there. And somebody gave a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, a sermon about love. And this student came up and said that he was protesting the sermon because he felt victimized. Because he realized that he wasn't being loving the way that that scripture said he should. And so he is being victimized and made to feel bad and have his feelings hurt. I'll tell you right now, some people just need to be slapped. <laughs> Not punched in the nose. I'm talking about open hand, just. I can't back that up with scripture. That's just my <laughs> personal opinion. <laughs> Wake somebody up to reality. I'm telling you, young people, please do not buy into this lie that you deserve to not have your feelings hurt, that you deserve or entitled to anything because you're going to have a hard time seeing God's grace. When you realize you deserve nothing and everything that you have is not because of you in any way but it's only because of him and his sovereign grace. Second thing that his grace means, number two, we should pray for hardened hearts. Since God's grace means that he can take for himself anyone that he chooses, then pray with confidence and boldness that he is able to save even the most undeserving and hardened sinner. You know, it's easy for us to label certain individuals, look at somebody and go, well, that's a lost cause right there. They're they're never going to believe. Oh, if God really chooses people, I promise you, that's one he hadn't chosen right there. We can't make that call. If you have an incorrect understanding of grace, meaning that you believe that his grace is determined by our actions and he's a responder to us, then every one of us are lost causes because none of us are able to do anything that would warrant God's grace and his favor on our lives. There is nothing that we can do to earn that from God. If God must wait for the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the spiritually dead to bring themselves to life, then you might as well not pray at all for anyone's salvation because it's not going to happen. We're not able to do that. If the deaf could make themselves hear, they would. If the blind could make themselves see, they would. If the dead could raise themselves to life, they would. 
But if you believe that only God causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the dead to come alive, then pray for those that you know are in that spiritual condition. That means there's a chance for everyone, even the most wicked and vile among us. Nothing is too big for God's grace. Nothing. Right now, I, I mean, in my mind, probably the most wicked that we can think of in our time is ISIS. I mean, you read about what they're doing to people over there. It's, it's unlike anything. I mean, there was some bad stuff going on in history, I know. But, man, this stuff that ISIS is doing is just straight-up demonic. But you know that there are stories coming out of members of ISIS who are coming to Christ? And it's not because a missionary is going in there and telling them. It's because God in his sovereign grace has chosen to reveal himself to them through a dream or a vision or something that absolutely changes them. And then they leave ISIS and then they do run into another Christian or a missionary somewhere that confirms what they had already seen. Man, what an example of just the immensity of God's grace. And how nothing is outside of that. And that God gets those whom he decides to get. God saves. And if he can save one of them, he can save anyone. And if you believe that, then number three, share the gospel with everyone. Since God's grace can take anyone he chooses, then share the gospel with everyone because his grace is going to get some of them. There are some right now that God has set his affections on long ago that are just waiting for that one person that God wants to use to open their eyes. Why not you? Why not you? It's an amazing thing to be a part of something like that. Announce the good news to the most unlikely sinner. God saves by grace and he is no respecter of persons. If he kept for himself 7,000 during the days of Baal worship, he can keep for himself 7 million in these days of everything that man worships today. Number four, take risks. Since God's grace keeps us from falling and preserves us for himself and that nothing can separate us from his love, therefore take risks with your life with your money for the sake of the kingdom. You can't lose. Amazing grace chose us, amazing grace calls us, and amazing grace keeps us. So take risks with your life for the sake of the poor and dying. That is why God saved you and made you secure that so you could show where your real treasure and security are. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your possessions. It's not in your health and safety. It's in his amazing grace that nothing in this world can come against or take away from you. And so invest your life into things that are going to carry on into eternity rather than things that are just going to burn up here anyway. I mean, you can take risks because the reality is that you have absolutely nothing to lose. Since there was nothing that you did that caused you to gain salvation, there is nothing that you can do that would cause you to lose it. Taking risks for the kingdom is a win-win proposition. Because Christ has, 
you now can. And finally, number five, worship God. Wake up in the morning and think, saved by grace. Thank you, God. Go to work and remember, saved by grace. Praise you, Jesus. Come home and declare in your house, saved by grace. Thank you, Father. This is precisely why he saved you. So that you could do the very thing that he created you for, which is to worship, praise, adore, honor, and glorify his holy name. And that's why he didn't give you what you deserve, because nobody celebrates justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. And if we all got what we deserve, none of us would be able to do what we were created for. Because if we all got what we deserved, we'd all be spending eternity in hell right now. I don't know, but that's not really something to celebrate, get excited about. Nobody celebrates justice. I've never seen someone thank the judge for sentencing them to prison. Never seen somebody thank the police officer for writing them a ticket. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I got pulled over just right around the loop over here. One of my taillights was out. And I deserve to get a ticket for that because I broke the law by driving around with a taillight that didn't work. But that police officer decided to extend mercy to me and he wrote me a warning. What do you think I said to him? Thank you. Thank you for doing that. If he wrote written me a ticket, I doubt I would have thanked him for that. Because we don't celebrate justice. What we celebrate is mercy. And so God extends it to some so that we could do the very thing that we were created for, which is to worship him. Now, Darren made a good point in his newsletter, if you got it this month, that if we really knew what it is that we've been saved from, our worship would look a lot different. That we would worship more. And I, I believe that's true. If we really knew just how doomed we were and how hopeless and helpless we were at doing anything about it, uh, our worship would be intensified. promise you that. But I believe that there's something else that would cause us to worship even more. You see, we weren't just saved from something. We were saved to something. Some of us, we have a pretty good understanding of what it is that we've been saved from, but I'm not so sure that a lot of us really grasp what it is that we've been saved to. And the more that we focus on the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the more that we discover all that we have been saved to. And if we really understand what all that is, not only would our worship on Sunday mornings be enriched, but our whole lives would be an act of worship to God every day and if our salvation is anything other than God's grace if there was something that we did that brought about our salvation then we would have less to worship God for and more that we could brag about ourselves God says in Isaiah 42 8 I will not share my glory with another and so if we have any part in our salvation That means God can't get all the glory for that. We get to have a little bit of it ourselves. But because God will not share his glory with another, salvation is all his doing.
Colossians 1.13 says he rescued us from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. To be rescued means that somebody came and did something that you weren't able to do yourself. He saved us to the kingdom of his son. could probably spend a whole series on what just that right there means by itself. Since God is the only one who saved us, he is the only one who can receive the praise, the credit, the thanks for it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do boast in you. We exalt in you. We praise you and we thank you. God, I thank you that salvation was all you're doing because, God, the more we see our condition, Lord, in our sinful nature, Lord, the more we realize how foolish it is to think that we could do anything to bring about our salvation. God, we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive to Christ. God, I pray that the gravity of that would just... just become so real to us this morning. Holy Spirit, come now and just sear that into our minds. Lord, transform our hearts with that. God, I pray that those who have been wringing their hands over the state of this world and have been living in so much fear, Lord, would you let them see that right now that if their faith is in you, that they are preserved. And no matter how bad things get in this world, nothing can come against the things that matter most. Nothing can come against the things that have the highest value. God, thank you for making us secure in you. And thank you that it doesn't depend on us. If it did, we would fail every time. God, your grace is amazing. Lord, would you just overwhelm us with that in this place this morning. Lord, if there's someone in here who is not fully repented and turned from their ways and received Jesus for their salvation. Lord, I pray that'd be something we can celebrate here today. God, the affections that you set on them long before they were born, they could finally realize on this day and experience it for eternity. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and just have your way in the remainder of this time together. Lord, take this the truth in your word here and just do the work in our hearts that you desire to do. Give us revelation of who you are and what it means to belong to you. Lord, we just submit ourselves to you now and ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.